Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. The city of Aurora has a new crisis intervention program that sends trained mental health professionals to respond to some emergency calls. We're able to divert away from those higher levels of care or involvement in the criminal justice system. In today's show, we learn about Aurora's mobile response team, and we talk with the founder of a new hiking group that's welcoming people of all types into the outdoors. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. The city of Aurora launched a new crisis intervention program last month. The Aurora Mobile Response Team, under the city's Division of Housing and Community, is sending unarmed, trained mental health professionals to respond to some emergency calls. The idea is to provide better support and de-escalation for people experiencing mental health crises. It's currently in a pilot phase through March 12th of 2022. They're accepting calls in Northwest Aurora Wednesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. For more about the mobile response team and how it works, we're joined by program manager Courtney Tassan, Falk Rocky Mountain paramedic Alex James, and Aurora mental health clinician Tandis Hashemi. Courtney, Alex, Tandis, thank you all so much for talking with us. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thank you. Courtney, I would like to start with you and the inspiration behind the program. Why was this something the city wanted to create? I think that the city of Aurora does a really good job about looking for new and innovative programs to add to the repertoire that they already have here. I think we saw a lot of the civil unrest of 2020, and it just sparked some more ideas for some better trauma-informed options on how to respond to these calls and how to get people to a place where they can get support as well as connection to resources. And who are you serving typically with this program? So we serve anyone who is identified to be experiencing a behavioral health crisis um, that looks like children or it can be adults, can be individuals with an intellectual developmental disability, can be anyone really, anyone who just needs a little bit of help. And I understand the Aurora Police Department has a similar program called the Aurora Police Crisis Response Team. How is the mobile response team different from what they do? Sure. So the mobile response team uses a paramedic and a licensed mental health professional rather than a law enforcement officer and a mental health professional. So the crisis response team with Aurora Police are partnered with law enforcement officers. This program utilizes these professionals to kind of create a non-law enforcement response, like an alternative response. So we're taking care of those low-intensity behavioral health calls. So individuals who nonviolent don't have any weapons on them but just need some additional support where the crisis response team is able to take some more high-intensity calls due to the kinds of professionals they have with them. And how do you get calls for where to go? So we are dispatched through the City of Aurora Dispatch. So when an individual calls into 911 or the non-emergency line, a call is created and our team is able to review all the information that's coming in through dispatch and decide if it's a call that's appropriate for the team. I'm wondering how closely you might work with the Aurora Police Department, if at all, and are they supportive of the program? 
they've been incredibly supportive. So we are working within their police district one. So that Northwest Aurora is their police district one. And we've had a lot of encounters where they're even requesting the team to come and help because they understand that maybe a call is outside of their scope of expertise. And they understand that this team is here to provide that support. So the team's been able to respond and relieve officers. That way they can go back in service and focus on more criminal matters. Now, we know other cities have found some success with uh, similar programs to the mobile response team. I'm thinking of Denver and their uh, support team assisted response program, or STAR. Uh, They also send unarmed paramedics and clinicians to some uh, calls mainly involving mental health or substance abuse. I'm wondering how much guidance have you taken from similar programs like STAR, Courtney? So we absolutely looked at the data and the research that backs programs such as this. We don't believe in reinventing the wheel. We think a lot of people have very successful programs to include Denver and the CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon. We've looked at a lot of their standard operating procedures as well as just the successes they've had to model how this program will look. And we've taken what works for this area and we've left out maybe what doesn't. And how effective are these programs like STAR or the the CAHOOTS program you mentioned in Oregon? So CAHOOTS has been around, geez, probably since the 1980s. So it's been very successful and STAR has seen great success. They just got a million dollar award um, to continue its program. So we're seeing a real need for these programs across the country just for the basic part of needing more trauma-informed care, but also it alleviates our patrol officers. It lets them focus on the things that are more pressing. And by taking these lower intensity calls off of them, they can really focus on keeping the city safe. Right. And I know we kind of toss out terms like, oh, this is a success. I'm wondering how you measure success. What is your definition of, of a successful program? So for me, a successful program looks like just assisting as many people as we can and getting them to the lower levels of care. So one of the main goals of this program is emergency room department and jail diversions. So when encountering individuals in the past, oftentimes patrol officers would put them on a mental health hold or they would have to go to jail because they were experiencing some sort of behavioral health crisis. By having individuals who are trained in how to respond to these individuals and connect them to services, as well as safety plan, we're able to divert away from those higher levels of care or involvement in the criminal justice system. So those are two huge performance indicators, but also just how we're being perceived by the community and our other public safety stakeholders like police and fire and the other emergency departments. Well, Alex James, let's turn to you. Uh, You're a paramedic. Wondering how many calls have you responded to since the program began? We're around 50, I believe. Wow, that's quite a few since it just launched last month. What types of situations are you responding to? Uh, the majority of them of them have been behavioral emergencies, people who need some kind of support in some kind of way, and we're a little bit more trained to be able to provide that for them. Outside of that, we do go on some welfare checks, utilizing my uh, experience within medicine to be able to you know, every once in a while, divert an ambulance that doesn't need to be there when somebody just needs to be woken up when they're sleeping in their car or that kind of thing. But mostly it's behavioral emergencies. And I'm also wondering how your work with the mobile response team um, is different than if you were responding to a call without the team or with police. Is there anything you do differently as a paramedic with this program? 
I've gotten to go see a lot of different programs like this. I actually got flown out to Oakland to uh, shadow the cat team. And one thing that they were very hard pressed on was uh, lean on your clinician because they have more experience in these crisis situations than anybody else. So that's the one thing that I've been able to do because while I am given some behavioral training within my uh, paramedicine, it's not anywhere near the standards of somebody like my clinician, Tandis, who's had years and years of experience within crisis management. And it's wonderful to have that resource to be able to lean on. Yeah. Well, that's a great segue to turn right now to Tandis Hashemi, um, because a very key component of this program is that responders are unarmed, not accompanied by police. Uh, in your experience as a mental health clinician, how can the presence of armed police or law enforcement affect someone in a crisis? You know, I think um, that's a great question. Traditionally, a lot of times because law enforcement officers are enforcing the law, um, it can be send a message that someone is in trouble, right? And if someone is experiencing a mental health related crisis, um, it, it takes them a little while to de-escalate and understand that they're not in trouble and that the officers are there to provide support. Um, and so that can, you know, be escalated at times. And so I think um, having additional support of mental health clinicians um, can, you know, help with that. What does it look like when you respond to a call? And you know, what kinds of resources are, do you connect people with? Right now, given that I work with Aurora Mental Health Center, and that is the community mental health agency in the city of Aurora, um, that allows me the opportunity to put in a lot of referrals through um, the community mental health center and get people connected to services in that way. Um, and I also do have a lot of experience working in crisis. And so I'm always looking out for additional resources like shelters and substance use resources and um you know, just all the things that are accessible within the city of Aurora. Um, and at times, you know, um, like shelters and things, we do use some of the resources in Denver, just um, the closer, uh, given our area is pretty close to Denver. So, Tandis, Alex mentioned he, he leans on the clinician for direction. I'm wondering how you and the paramedics on the team work together, whether it's Alex or somebody else. I think, you know, I uh, really do believe that the team um, is the team effort is really important, right? We're uh, coming across situations where people are um, dealing with a lot. And so having the support of someone who has the medical knowledge and someone who can provide um, the you know clinical mental health support, I think that's really beneficial. Um, and also, I think you know being able to lean on each other, I really appreciate that um, you know when I'm working with someone, my partner and I, Alex, we're able to kind of read the situation together. and um, as we continue to work together, um, we get quicker on picking up on some of those. So, and I'm also curious about the response you've gotten from people who you respond to. Are they receptive to the help you offer? Have you found that uh, perhaps they've had a, a bad experience or a negative experience in the past with armed law enforcement? I think we are being uh, perceived well. Um, there are times where um, sometimes officers have requested our support or um, the fire department has requested our support and we show up and the individual, you know, it, is worried that they're in trouble, like I had mentioned earlier. And so they're maybe denying everything. Um, and so it has been nice to um, be able to, 
you know, build a different kind of connection and um, get them to disclose and open up a little bit easier than they may feel opening up to officers or people in the fire department. Well, Courtney, I'd like to end back with you. The Aurora Mobile Response Team, as we mentioned, is a pilot program until March of 2022, mid-March or so. What happens after the pilot ends? So we are currently partnering with the Aurora Research Institute to conduct a full program evaluation at the end of this six-month pilot period. And with that, we'll be able to look at all of the data we've collected and see how much of an impact we've made within this community and if it's something that the community and city council want to keep around. So expansion is a potential, but we just have to look and see at what capacity and if that's possible for this area. Courtney Tassen is the program manager for the Aurora Mobile Response Team. Alex James is a paramedic with Falk Rocky Mountain. And Tandis Hashemi is a clinician with Aurora Mental Health. Courtney, Alex, Tandis, thank you all so much for talking with us. You're so very welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Just ahead, we hear about Fat Babes in the Wild, a new local hiking group that's welcoming people into the outdoors. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Much of the conversation about water in the West is concerned with human use, but it's also an important part of wildlife habitat. Work is underway across the region to make sure birds, insects, mammals, and plants all have thriving places to live near bodies of water. Laura Palmisano from KVNF reports on wetland habitat restoration in the Gunnison Valley in western Colorado. So on the drive-in, you probably noticed that we're basically in a high-elevation desert out here in the sagebrush ecosystem. That's wildlife conservation biologist Nathan Seward, who works for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. On this warm August morning, he's talking to a small group of volunteers. They're here to help with a wet meadow restoration project taking place on public land 20 miles outside of Gunnison. A wet meadow is a riparian area in the arid sagebrush landscape. Always joke around that I should have majored in basket weaving instead of wildlife management because that's definitely a skill we're going to be using today. Volunteers like Peyton Manis weave willow branches into protective barriers. The team also builds with sagebrush and stones collected nearby. I think it's really cool how we're doing it here. It's super low tech, which means that basically anyone can come in and do it. You don't need a lot of training. Volunteers hammer wood posts and use rocks to build simple structures and artificial beaver dams along sections of the creek. These structures slow the water down and spread it out. Max Sawyer says a narrow stream creates a very small strip of habitat going through the valley bottom. By putting these structures in and spraying the water out, we can go from 3 feet of habitat to 10 feet to 20 feet to maybe even 100 feet of habitat. Sawyer is a master's student in environmental management at Western Colorado University. The goal of this restoration project is to get this stream to re-wet more of the valley bottom again, spread it out, move it to the edges of our meadow, reduce some of our upland species that have come down, some of that sagebrush, get it out of the valley bottom, get more of those riparian species in here. Wet meadows and riparian areas in sagebrush country only account for about 2% of the landscape. Trouble for these systems started when white settlers came out west. Instead of taking their wagons through the sagebrush, where it was rocky and rough, they'd follow the edges of the meadows. 
Conservation biologist Nathan Seward says the wagon wheels created trenches that were reinforced by livestock trailing between water sources and eventually off-road vehicles using the same paths. These trenches caused water to pool. And so when water gets captured in those trails, it speeds up and it becomes more erosive and it starts to downcut. It starts actually washing away the topsoil and working its way until it finally hits the bedrock. Max Sawyer says these impacts are being sped up by climate change. So we're trying to prevent these systems from disappearing entirely from our landscape. Wet meadows provide critical habitat for deer, elk, migratory birds, pollinators, livestock, and the federally threatened Gunnison sage-grouse. They also act as natural sponges, holding water in the soil and slowly releasing it over time. Seward says that is only getting more important as climate change makes the area drier. Everyone knows that water in the West is life. I mean, all life needs water. So by holding more water here in the Gunnison Basin longer and putting it to good beneficial use for wildlife, for our agricultural industries like ranching as well, you know, really everyone benefits from this kind of work. Project organizers say the restoration is working in the Gunnison Basin. Overall, they've seen wetland vegetation double in treated areas since the program started in 2012. This is just one of dozens of watershed restoration projects in Colorado and states across the West. I'm Laura Palmisano in Gunnison. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, supported by the Walton Family Foundation. Colorado is known for being a haven for hikers, but for beginners, the state's endless trails and experienced hikers on them can be intimidating, sometimes uninviting. Hiking can be even more daunting for Coloradans whose bodies are not thin, white, or cisgender. Rachel Guerreri of Broomfield felt like an outsider when she first started hiking in Colorado, so she started a hiking group called Fat Babes in the Wild to create a community for people who felt the same way. Rachel joins us now to talk about the group and why it's important for fat people to claim and belong in outdoor spaces. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I want to ask first what some of your early hiking experiences were like in Colorado. So when I first moved to Colorado, I kind of had a a hard time finding trails that I could actually do and didn't feel intimidated by. Um, A lot of the trails that were marked easy on all trails also had some um, parts of the trail where you had to navigate your own way. And I was like, whoa, this is a little bit more than I could handle. So I reached out to um, some of my longtime friends that have lived here and asked for hiking spots that are easily accessible to everyone. And that is what has taken me to Brainerd Lake, which is where we've had two of our hikes so far, and doing the trails up there. And it's felt like being up there, it's all the trails are, for the most part, very well-worn and well-marked, and it's not as intimidating. Well, then let's talk about Fat Babes in the Wild. How did you get the idea for this group? Wow. So... It all just started two months ago, really. This is this is a brand new brand new group. Um, about uh, in early August, 
I reached out um, on a Facebook group called Colorado Girl Gang. And I just posted, hey, would anyone want to go hiking with me? This is a low pressure hike. We're going to stop and catch our breath um, while we smell the wildflowers. And I'm going to bring my camera so we can take some hot pics of ourselves filling ourselves in nature. I was expecting like five responses, but just that night I got 160 messages of people that are wanting this and have felt the same way that hiking has been intimidated. They've lived here their whole lives and they've never been in the mountains because they're intimidated. Therefore, I created the group because I just felt there was such a need for it in this community. If you had that many responses the first time out, who all showed up to hike and how did you manage a large group like that? <laughs> well, our first hike, we had a ton of interest. We actually had um, about 18 people show up at the trailhead. I brought name tags and I also had um, my friend who is kind of helping me co-organize this. Her name is Kate Halber to kind of help me navigate leading the group and set down some ground rules about hiking and what this is all about at the trailhead. You know, like I would set up checkpoints. Otherwise, we go the same speed as everyone else. If you want to go ahead, here's a checkpoint. We'll meet you there. If not, we, mar we, we walk as slow as the slowest person. So it's really non-intimidating. And a lot of everyone that actually joined me on this trip had never been up there. So once they went up there, they're like, wow, I can't believe this exists. And it's actually accessible for all of us. This is amazing. So I've been really happy to share one of my favorite places with this community. I know you've only been around for a couple of months, but who is showing up to your hikes? Predominantly women. Um, we have people coming from Fort Collins, Castle Rock, Colorado Springs. I was really impressed how far people were willing to drive. And of course, we this is a queer-friendly group. So we have people that identify as non-binary. Um, we also have Black and people of color joining us. It's, it's open to everyone. Pretty much if you love a fat person, or if you yourself are fat and you want to celebrate movement in the outdoors, you're welcome to join us. And when you are all hiking with fat babes in the wild, how does it feel different compared to when you're hiking with others or with thin presenting people? It's very empowering um, because all these groups of people are so encouraging and empowering you know, typically when I hike with thin presenting people, um, I feel self-conscious. I'm like, oh my gosh, are they hearing me breathe? You know, everyone said breathe, but I was worried about like them hearing me being out of breath or having to stop or slow down their hike. So with this group, you know, that's expected and everyone encourages breaks and, you know, like it's, it's not a, it doesn't feel like a burden to them to have to stop and you feel so empowered by being out there with this group of predominantly fat people and other people see these fat people on the trail and 
I'm trying to break the stigma of fat people existing in these outdoor spaces. And I really, I love that because children see us, other people see us, and it, it's, it's breaking the stigma. I want to come back to something you mentioned about bringing your camera along. Is there a, a specific reason for, for bringing your camera other than to get amazing photos of the outdoors? Uh, yeah, that's a part of it that kind of uh, sets us apart as, of being different. As I bring my camera because a lot of times fat people don't have the resources or the friend group to want to go up into the woods and take pictures of themselves feeling themselves in nature. And I feel like everyone deserves to have that experience. You know, we live in a social media culture of influencers. So you see then presenting people out in the wild, taking all these hot and cool photos and you want to do it too. And so I kind of bring that opportunity to it by encouraging other people, you know, if I, if I can't take your picture with my Canon at that moment, the other girls are around snapping their phones and like posing and stuff. It's really empowering to get outdoors and really feel yourself outdoors. And I love that. Well, for people who would love to join the group, um, how can they do that? And what do you have a next event planned? We do. We do. So we're doing a meetup at Anderson Farms on October 21st at 6 p.m. I've rented a fire pit for the group. Um, all that's asked is that you buy the, your entry ticket. Um, this is Thursday, the 21st at 6 p.m. at Anderson Farms. If you're interested in joining the group, this is a Facebook group. It started as a Facebook group. And on Facebook, you just search Fat Babes in the Wild. You'll have a few questions to answer, and then you'll be let in. Rachel Guerreri is the creator of the Fat Babes in the Wild hiking group. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you and sharing this message with everyone. That's our show for today. Next week on Colorado Edition, we hear how school districts are dealing with a shortage of bus drivers. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.